Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Looking at Bitcoin, up 12.5% here, $17,700 per token. But let's face it, folks, the crypto space is facing existential crisis, I would say. Um, Samuel Bankman freed SBF to the kids. He's the FDX uh, Cryptocurrency Derivatives Exchange CEO and co-founder. They've got some real problems there, as does some related businesses there. We need to roundtable this discussion with people that actually report this on a daily basis, cover from a research perspective. Mike McGlone, Senior Commodity Strategist with Bloomberg Intelligence, and he's really been our crypto, uh, crypto go-to uh, from BI. And Katie Greifeld, cross-asset reporter uh, with Bloomberg News, joins us. Hey, Mike, it, you know, you've seen booms and busts across a wide range of securities and commodities. Is this a Lehman moment for the crypto space, in your learned opinion? Oh, yes. I do think so. It's quite the shock to have this happen with Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX. I mean, they were he was the stud of the industry. Everybody loved him. He was great. He had some great conferences. This is a big shocker. Um, the question is, now, where do we go from here? And I think what um, we're going to do is, yes, we're going to get through this. The, the technology is still very valid, but it's going to come when we do finally break out to uh, back to the enduring trend. It's going to probably come from a lower plateau. So I'm looking at Bitcoin now as now we know pretty significant resistance is 20,000, well, good supports 10,000. But the key thing to point out is Ethereum's holding a $1,000 support. Just put that in context. At the end of 2019, it was $100. I think, you know, discussion about Bitcoin or Ethereum as an asset class, that's not what this is really about, right? After Lehman Brothers, you wouldn't have said the dollar is a horrible fiat currency. It wasn't about that. It was about what Dick Fold did and the decisions made at the bank. This is about what Sam Bankman, Sam Bankman Fried did and the decisions he made at FTX and Almeida and the kind of lack of transparency there. What do you think happened, Mike? What did SBF do that left a four to eight billion dollar hole that he can't pay back? Got over his shoes. That's a very young person. But uh, how did he take customer money from FTX and then gamble it on yeah. uh, at Almeida? Well, there's a lot of uh, accusations that that happened. Exactly what happened within that company, I don't really know. I mean, but that's what I hear. He came out today on Twitter, and he's apologized, so he's kind of admitting errors here, at least finally, so we can kind of you know say, move forward from that. But as far as exactly what he did, similar things I think we've had in a lot of spaces, it's just that classic human nature of greed. 
when you cross. I, I, it remind me of what happened with Japan when they collapsed in 80. It was that cross-asset holding. But those are real equities. They're cross-holding of tokens, which only have value if someone's willing to buy them. Katie, where do you think where do you think the story goes next, Katie? I mean, was Sam Bankman-Fried with the space kind of what, mm-hmm. what what are you guys on the reporting side thinking about? Oh my gosh! Well, I'll sell you on the reporting side. <laughs> it's a little bit busy right now, but I think I will bring it back to the conversation we had with Nick. Uh, Carter of Castle Island Ventures yesterday. The immediate news, of course, is what's happening with FTX. Are they hurtling towards bankruptcy? What is going to happen with Sam Bankman-Fried? But you've got to look for the fallout because no matter... Oh, Isn't FTX bankruptcy a foregone conclusion? Well, we don't. We haven't gotten the headline. We haven't gotten the filing, so we can't say that yet. Right, but is there anyone... So CZ and Binance have said they're not going to rescue him. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sequoia wrote down there... Um, investment so they're yeah. clearly not going to do it softbank has made some pretty horrible investment decisions so maybe softbank will go in there yeah. and throw good well, money after bad you know we know that sam bakeman fried is trying he said that he's going to quote give anything for capital so maybe someone comes out of the woodwork who we're not expecting maybe someone from the trad space but to your point with you, four billion dollars four billion dollars i know that's those are some big bucks there but Beyond what is happening with FTX, the chaos that's happening there, I think you need to look at the lenders like Nick Carter told us. If Alameda Research, like Sam Bankman-Fried said today, is really winding down trading, Alameda was you know, really involved with a lot of the lenders that are still left in the space. So that's where I would look. If you look at the coin level, I know that every single coin is rallying today, but you look at something like Solana, it's up 37% right now. That seems a little bit hairy when you think about what big backing that that blockchain got from Alameda, that it got from Sam Bankman-Fried. I know there was a CPI print, but I don't know. And you think the rally in, and Mike, by the way, uh, what do you think? Because Katie thinks the big rally in crypto really is about the CPI print and the huge rally in stocks. Okay, but but it's kind of ironic. Finally, we got a CPI number we can expect, which my colleague Jonathan Levin nailed, expected. But the key thing is, why is it weaker than expected? I published on this, on the deflation numbers coming out of China. Because we're heading towards recession. The market just hasn't figured it out yet. You look at the forward curve, Fed funds a year from now, they dropped 25 basis points. Now, obviously, two, you know, two. But to me, this is the part of we should expect. CPI inflation numbers will start being weaker than expected because my colleague Anna Wong in BI is predicting a 100% chance, her model says, for recession next year. And then we start tilting over. But this is the whole tie now. This is the Wait, macro. saying 100% chance, that seems like a dangerous well, call. this is the same person who called a 5%, you know, Fed funds rate, you know, it, nine it months ago, and she was right. Okay, it was clearly going. I mean, we all kind of knew that. No, we did, and that was way out of control. I would say call. six. But calling for a 100% chance of something so, happening next year, other than the sun coming up? I, I don't know. Right. This is, this is crypto. Mike, to, we're going to have to yeah. leave it there. We're going to come back, yeah. and, we'll, and we'll, we'll do that later. Mike McGlone, senior commodity strategist from Bloomberg Intelligence. Katie Greifeld, cross-asset reporter. Hey, Matt, you've got a show on this stuff, right? It's a special, an hour-long special. Today at 1 p.m., Thursday afternoon, 6 p.m. in London, we'll tell you all about what's going on with FTX and Almeida. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. 
To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Uh, definitely moving on this uh, CPI print. Uh, we want to check in with uh, Christian Chan. He's the chief uh, investment officer at Asset Mark. Uh, Christian, you see the collect, you see the moves in equity markets and the fixed income markets today. What does that tell you about kind of where this market is in terms of you know expectations, pent up demand, waiting for a pivot, waiting for a pivot? I mean, how do you interpret today's data? Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, yeah, really great inflation number, I think, all around. If you can consider 7.7% year-on-year growth in prices as, as a good print. Um, but I think what everybody's cheering for is that it looks like we're finally on the downside of this slope here. Um, the core number even fell a bit, so I think better than certainly expectations. And when we look across the breadth of prices, um, pretty good in terms of um, all of the components of CPI that fell, um, and it was really just shelter that was, uh, you know, still contributing to a, you know, the pretty good price increase. But uh, I think that, uh, as we all know, uh, takes a while to percolate through the, uh, you know, through these CPI numbers. So from the market's perspective, you know, I think, you know, the, the way I think about this is, yes, it's good news, um, particularly with, I think, what was feared. And yeah, I kind of think of this CPI number as, the same way we thought about earnings uh, really over the last couple of quarters, which is better than feared. Let, let me just run through the numbers quickly for our listeners so they know what we got. Uh, at 8.30 this morning, so about two hours ago, we got the headline number at 7.7%. It still is shockingly high inflation. As I was saying before, it's still um, a very big number, but it's the lowest that we've gotten this year. And we were looking for 7.9% and the previous print was 8.2%. So 7.7 makes us feel good. The core was up, or at least CPI excluding food and energy was up month over month, uh, 0.3%. Um, we were, we were looking for 0.5% though, so it's much better than that, and we're down from 0.6%. So we're still looking at serious inflation, Christian. You mentioned the rent component, and this is something that a lot of people have been talking about. Obviously, um, people don't sign new rental contracts every month. So, you know, those effects take a year to play out. Is this why, you know, the market is optimistic about a 7.7% number because they don't really believe it's as bad as it as it looks? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And and when when I think about you know that that rental piece in particular, as you mentioned, it it does take a while for uh, for lower rents to to work through into the CPI numbers. Same thing with the owner's equivalent rent. Um, but I think you're exactly right. I think that we're hopefully on this you know down slope of inflation. Um, and I think about uh, the other parts of the market and what's happened. So the inflation swaps. Um, so I think yesterday they're trading at 3.4%, so implying a 3.4% inflation rate one year from today, down to about 2.9%. So I think people are pricing in a different, not just a different level of inflation, 
but a different path in terms of the progression back down to something closer to two or three percent um, in a year or so. Yeah, we get U- University of Michigan expectations tomorrow morning. Um, right now, it looks like the economists that we've talked to expect the one-year inflation outlook to be 5.1 percent. That's still very high. That's higher than it previously was. But you know, maybe that number is a beat. Mm-hmm. Um, University of Michigan, such a strong football team this year. They are. That's going to really be worries a, me. A huge game. Yeah, as an Ohio the, State Ohio fan, State. I'm I'm concerned about that. But in terms of the markets, Christian, what do you, what are you expecting? Because we've really rallied up to over 3,900 on the S and P. You know, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, we were at 3,600. Are we going to finish the year at these levels or even higher? Yeah, I think that's a that's a really distinct possibility. I think. Um, you know, certainly earnings have been better than I think we had feared, better than than a lot of folks have, have expected. Um, and if we continue to get good prints on CPI, uh, I think we could see, you know, these levels hold or, or even trade higher. I don't think we'll rip, you know, well above 4,000 um, and, and stay there for that long. But, um, you know, I think that the big macro driver today is clearly inflation. And if we start to get a sensor that's under control and we're pricing that properly in the marketplace, um, yeah, I think we could finally see inflation prints uh, being a bit of a tailwind for uh, both equity and bond markets as opposed to um, you know, the big headwind that they've been over the last uh, six months or so. All right, Christian, you're based in Concord, California, right? Uh, yes. All right, just east of uh, San Francisco. Are you guys going to get snow up at Tahoe this, this, this winter? <laughs> Oh, that's what we're hoping for. Uh, I don't know that we have much yet, but uh, yeah, we're uh, we're all hoping for a good ski season. That's for sure. I love Tahoe. It's a great place to ski up there. Squaw Valley, you know, oh, that's my fave. I love. Well, I love the movie Hot Dog. You've yeah, got to be sure. a certain age to even remember that movie, but that was based at Squaw Valley. Yeah, it's some good stuff up there. We're all basically we're hoping for a mild winter for continental Europe. But we want Lots as much snow, snow as, as possible, possible. <laughs> in the Alps and in the Rockies. Exactly. That out in the Sierra Nevada. Christian Chen, CIO of Asset Mark, joins us. We've got interest rates pulling back today, but when we think about the mortgage rates out there, they've surged to north of 7%. I think Matt might have locked in something like 3.25% when he bought his house uh, recently. So a big, big move up in uh, interest rates really impacting the real estate business so the Federal Reserve is certainly having an impact there. We want to talk about the commercial real estate business. And for that, we check in with Hassam Naji, president and CEO of Marcus and Millichap, which is a New York Stock Exchange traded company. MMI is the symbol. It's got a market capitalization about $1.4 billion. Uh, Hassam, thanks so much for joining us here. So talk to us about the state of the commercial real estate business. We've seen the residential business start to roll over here with higher rates. What are we seeing in your commercial space? Good morning. Thanks for having me on the program. Very similar to the trends you mentioned on the residential side of the uh, marketplace, we're seeing essentially a reaction to a shock delivered by the rapid and steep uh, interest rate increases. Therefore, pricing is challenged. Maturing loans that now need to be refinanced are challenged. And the market is just recalibrating to try and figure out what the actual valuations on each asset should be because of the cost of debt. Debt is a very big component of commercial real estate transactions, especially among private investors, which make up the vast majority of transactions and ownership uh, throughout the U.S. So when rates go up, 
250 basis points, it does make a very uh, big difference on the valuation component. The second part of what we're seeing- And maybe you're getting to this, especially if um, a lot of businesses feel like they can just ax half of their office space, right? I mean, if you have so many employees working from home and it looks like that's no longer just a pandemic thing for at least a significant portion of your workforce, it's going to stay that way. You just don't need as much room, do you? On the office side of the equation, you're absolutely right. There is a reduction of footprint that is created by the hybrid workplace that is here to stay. We really do believe that. Most of our clients believe that. But it's also to, to some extent overstated in that uh, even I'm mean, here right here in New York today and you're seeing people come back into the city. Office occupancy is probably half of what it was pre-pandemic. And it'll probably take two or three more years for it to become more uh, normal, if you will. But you're bringing up a great point. Valuations for office under, are under the most pressure. Valuations for apartments and uh, uh, industrial, which were the lowest yields because they were the darling of the industry, are very challenged because the higher interest rates are challenging their, those yields a lot more than, say, shopping centers which were trading, already trading at a higher yield. Therefore, they had some room to absorb the interest rate shock. Um, but the good news all around commercial real estate, with the exception of office, is that supply and demand are in great shape. Vacancies were at an all-time low. There's not been an overbuilding cycle, and there hasn't been an over-leveraging cycle like we had in 08, 09, where the basically the credit markets collapsed. We don't see any of that happening. But uh, I can tell you, live from client interactions, there's a there's a shock factor on the interest rate side. What about the stores? We used to have Mm -hmm. on this block. I don't know where you are in New York right now, but you should come over on this block. uh, We used to have a container store. There was an H&M. There was uh, J. Crew. There was a there was a Victoria's Secret. Secret. Um, You know, all of those places are not only gone, but nothing has filled them in yet. They're still just sitting here empty in one of, dare I say, the nicest buildings in midtown Manhattan yep. on a block that used to be, you know, I mean, we're across the street from Bloomingdale's. <laughs> right. Matt, to your point, urban retail and older shopping centers in the suburbs that don't really have a sustainable anchor tenant anymore uh, are the hardest hit among retail that will take a long time to come back if they come back. Some of those older shopping centers are being reimagined and really acquired for reuse, which is the reinvention of retail. But I'll tell you, our core neighborhood shopping center clients and um, even the strip centers that are more in the path of traffic outside of core urban areas are the comeback kit. Uh, Those uh, uh, shopping centers, because they're tied to restaurants, fitness and entertainment, which is back in full force, uh, are doing very well. Um, in, in fact, they're they're leading uh, in terms of the sales trends for third quarter versus other property types. So, so re- real estate is always changing. That's the one thing to remember. So, Hassam, if if I'm a commercial real estate investor, is it as simple as going along the Nashvilles, the Austins, the Miamis of the world, and you know maybe not so much some of the northern cities, the higher tax cities? Is it as simple as that? You know, the, follow the demographics and the Sun Belt is a winner. You know, Florida, Texas, uh, some of the markets you mentioned uh, in the Northwest. I think Seattle is a incredibly strong market with great demographics. 
Uh, so you're absolutely right. Those are the growth markets. Follow the growth. But I, I also have to say that uh, some of the urban markets, San Francisco Bay Area, you know, Southern California, New York, not so much Chicago yet, those core markets where pricing has adjusted and is adjusting further, all of a sudden become the diamond in the rough. You have to think five years out, where will the recovery have not just gone with the demographics, but what are some of the metros you know left for big bruises and damage that can be a the diamond in the rough investment? I'm a big believer in the fact that urban America will come back. Mm. It'll take time, but it will come back. I love it. I'm still hung up on the strip mall success. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty awesome. Well, what I, yeah. I mean, e-commerce. I mean, some e-commerce surged during the pandemic, but what we're hearing from some retailers is foot traffic is coming back. It is. People really want that experiential retail. Every one of our clients that owns a shopping center that has a nice mix of restaurants, bars, you know, other forms of entertainment and fitness, uh, you know, personal care, beauty, all of those things are attracting uh, consumers back. Especially in, in the burbs, right, Hassan? Because people, those people who are working from home, you know, my wife, um, she doesn't ever have to go into the office anymore. So now instead of doing Pilates downtown in Manhattan, she does Pilates on Central Park Avenue in Scarsdale. They, exactly. I mean, you're, you're, you're nailing the trend right there. But I do think in the next two or three quarters, there will be some very unique buying opportunities because values of commercial real estate in general have to adjust to the higher interest rates. I think the Fed was behind the curve. Now they're hitting the, the economy with a head sledgehammer. As soon as we get a little relief on, you know, the worst of the interest rates being uh, interest rate increases being over and uh, re the inflation curve starting to go the other way, like we saw this morning and look at the market reaction, you're going to yeah. see some, you know, relief rally in commercial real estate too. But um, I do think there will be some buying opportunities. All right, good stuff. As always, Hassam Naji, president and CEO of Marcus and Millichap, uh, publicly traded uh, real estate company. MMI is the ticker to put into your Bloomberg terminal there. Uh, commercial real estate. Yeah, and Matt, there is actually a store going in at 59th and Lex here in our building. So they are putting something what in there. What is it? I don't know. Oh, oh I think it's going to be a, a bank, like a bank slash lounge. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
markets, as Charlie was just reporting, are moving seriously higher today. Yes, booming. Warps. Yep. You know what this kind of rally is called? What? Face ripping. Face ripping rally. That's a little yeah. harsh, I think, but it is just ripping. It's the most uh, S and P's up uh, the most since uh, 2020, April of 2020. I use that since function that Lisa Bromwitz likes. You, so much. We're not allowed to tell listeners <laughs> our secret that sauce? we have it because okay. you know what? That's an internal function. Oh, is it? Other clients don't have access to that function. Is that right? Yes. Why? It doesn't do anything. I don't know why, but all right. Yeah. All right. I use it, and I'm. Proud to use it. All right, Amanda Rabello joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. She's a head of passive sales, U.S. Onshore, DWS Group. We've determined that that is a Deutsche Bank a group there. What and is passive sales? What does that mean? We, we go over this, but I forget now. What's That's what? okay. It's basically anything which is tracking an index. So um, ETFs would be the main thing, but also we have scope for offering clients. Um, oh, I see. Passive as, a, as opposed to active. Because there Correct. are obviously ETFs with active managers, but mm -hmm. you're just looking at the passive side of the I business. I am, yeah. But working with our esteemed colleagues on the active side as well. There's no uh, passive or active. You know, they, they make sense in the portfolio together. All right, every time we talk to you, Amanda, you've got new ETFs for us. What do you got today? So today, um, we're delighted to announce that yesterday we listed um, on SIBO three new tickers, S&PD, S&PG, and S&PV. Wow. These are providing exposure to ESG dividend aristocrats, um, growth, and also value as well. I'm delighted to be partnering with S&P again there. So... Um I love ETFs, as you may remember. Yes. Uh, I have an ETF show um, that I host with Katie Greifeld and Eric Balchunas, the latter of whom is a legend in the he ETF really space. Um, what what makes you want to track these specific indexes? Why do you pick, um, you know, value makes sense to me. Dividend aristocrats, that's, that's an interesting one. Why do you choose these right now? Yeah, sure. So... Um well, first of all, Matt, you were talking about how you want to pay rise. Maybe you need to think about passive income in your portfolio. And mm. so dividend strategies generally have been really interesting this year. We've seen about $45 billion worth of flow go into dividend strategies year to date across different ETFs. And so we feel that there's something that we can add uh, value in for um, our investors and new investors. Um, how does that get back to an ETF yeah. holder? If I own a stock that mm. has a dividend, pays a dividend, obviously I'm getting, they yeah. mail it to me, you know, or my broker gets it. Um, how does that work with an ETF? Because you have a whole basket of stocks mm -hmm. and, you know, I don't even own really the basket. I just own uh, a, a, a ticket for the basket, right? Sure. So um, what we do is the portfolio managers, they'll accrue all of the dividend um, cash that they're receiving and then we'll pay it out typically on a quarterly or semi-annual basis. Um, you end up getting a check through your broker that you're holding the, um, holding the ETF with. And um, with dividend strategies, what we're looking to do is we're thinking about um, within, uh, in this case, the S&P 1500 universe, um, which are the names that are strong strong dividend payers. When we mean when we say strong dividend payers, we want to be thinking about sustainable dividends. So forgive the pun, but it's about um, over the last 25 years, which names have um, paid good quality sure. dividends. And um, haven't canceled year them, on right? year. And ha you don't exactly. want to get into a BP situation. Remember exactly. that? Exactly. Exactly. They hadn't cut their dividend for like 30 years, maybe longer. And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, they junked it. Really? Okay. Which was bad news and the CEO is out, right? Exactly. <laughs> Talk to us about ESG. I, I continue to waver here. What's What do the good folks at DWS think about the ETFs and, and, and ESG as a, I don't know, is that a factor? Is it a, 
style? Is it? A, I don't know what it is. Yeah, this is a question that we get a lot. So um, for us, ESG is just another lens to look um, through when you're thinking about investment um, portfolio management. And so we think about it a lot in terms of data. There's like clues in the data that can help us. Um, we see more and more that ESG um, has like in these tough markets provided some outperformance. And it's not always going to provide outperformance necessarily. It's not meant to. It doesn't promise to. But um, the reason why um, it has done um, more recently is that ESG data can provide us with some um, insights into things like rep risk, for example. So there is some scope for dampening on the downside. Uh, we think it's just, you know, another um, a set of data points that um, someone can use in terms of like stock picking or bond picking to think about um, you know, names are maybe more resilient. And also at the end of the day, we've had COP27 this week. Yes. Um, we need to be thinking about which companies are, oh yeah, you know, more resilient and like to regulatory change as well, to helping us with this um, one and a half degree um, target, us all aiming towards a net zero economy. These are the companies yeah. that should be doing better at the end of I the day. I just came back from Indonesia. I was there for two weeks. Great. Exploring the oceans around Very Indonesia. Jealous. And you know what? Uh, one of the things that really bothers me, rich countries around the world send all their trash to yeah. Indonesia, ostensibly to recycle, but of course they don't recycle it. The businesses that get paid to take the trash there just turn around and dump it in the street or in the ocean, even yeah. worse. So I would like to vote with my money, you know, and buy an ETF that fights against that kind of thing. All right, I'm sure you can. I mean, you know, there's there's an ETF for everything out there. That's kind of what I've been learning over the last several years. Amanda Rebello, thank you so much for joining thank us. Thank you. Amanda is the head of passive sales. We now know what that is for the U.S. onshore business at DWS Group. We now know what DWS stands for. We've learned so much in this segment. Markets still moving, holding on to the gains. Question for a lot of investors here is recession. Are we going to go into a recession? If so, how long? How deep? That's kind of the question that a lot of folks have. A lot of economists are figuring out right now. Anna Wong, chief U.S. economist for Bloomberg Economics, joins us. And I got to call this out because I do it every time because it's just so ridiculous. She gets a B.A. in economics and statistics from Berkeley. I mean, who does that? And then she turns around and gets a Ph.D. in economics from the University of Chicago. I mean, that is serious math there. So she's a real uh, economics geek, and we're glad that she's on our team. I'm pretty sure she also had a couple other like scholarships and Probably. grants and stuff that we don't know that about. That we don't know about. I'm sure Cambridge and Oxford are in there somewhere. But I got to ask, Anna, did they never tell you at any of these schools, don't forecast something that's a 100% <laughs> chance to happen? That, that's very high. Well, um, you know, I am. I have to tell you that that the 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 one hundred percent is what the model's telling us, <laughs> and uh, but the, it's your model. The reason, well, the model does have forecast errors, right? And and so in in terms of the confidence level, there's still a, a slither of possibility that there's you know that the the the, the model prediction is, is wrong. I'm going I'm going with your call, better. Anna, because you were absolutely spot on, way ahead of the market on where rates were going and. Uh, um, but for this recession um, that you You're and other economics are, uh, economists are forecasting, do you have any sense of how deep it may be, how long it may be? Like, how much of a problem is this going to be? 
You know, usually the a, a deep recession is triggered by some kind of underlying uh, financial vulnerability. So if you recall, the 2008 recession was deep because it started off where, where credit market completely freeze, um, you know, due to um, mortgages go, go, blowing up, right? So we don't see a similar kind of vulnerabilities on the balance sheet of households and corporates right now. So um, as of the information that we have, we, we don't see that trigger for that kind of uh, landing free, uh, freeze up in the lending and credit market. Um, so that said, um, we think that the, 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 the recession might be a shallow one. Um, and I, I think that that's the consensus on Wall Street as well. One thing but I'm I interested in, Anna, is the, is the housing market because – you know, we see these rates continue to go higher and higher. People are now saying 6% could be even higher than that for the Fed's terminal rate, which means mortgage rates are, are going to be what? 8, 9, 10%. That makes it harder to buy houses. And if unemployment rises and people are forced to sell houses, they can no longer make their monthly nut, those prices are going to have to come down pretty steep. Well, I, so for, first of all, mortgage rate price is most related to 10-year and 30-year Treasury yields, and the, those those prices react to expectations of where the Fed will go. So, um, if if today people are priced in a five percent terminal rate, then it's already you know reflected in the mortgage rate. So, so so as the Fed actually hikes to five percent. The mortgage rate would not increase further, so that's why well, they're thing. going to five, that's right? Are they going to six? Right. Well, our baseline is still five percent, um, mm. and because we precisely for the reasons that you saw in the CPI release today, there's strong disinflationary forces in in the economy, and um, it could there's a possibility that inflation could fall rather sharply after March of next year, which will, would um, which would still put the terminal rate at about 5%, from my point of view. Yeah, but well, we're past it at 4.861% <laughs> in May right. and of 23. That's right. And um, But regarding the housing market, though, um, um, so, you know, the U.S. market has underbuilt houses for almost a decade now, and we estimate that um, there's been a, a three to four million shortfall in houses that has been cumul- accumulated over the past 10 years, which means that, you know, there's still a lot of latent demand for housing. And if houses housing prices do fall by the 15 percent that we are forecasting over the next few years, that would be just a, it would become more affordable for maybe half of the population of the U.S. And so I, I think that half, at least half of the population would be cheering for a housing price correction because these are the people who really wanted to buy but don't have the house, you know, cannot afford to right now. And the second thing is that this housing uh, bubble that we are in right now, the rise in prices happened really quickly. So, and the fall also happened really quickly. So the number of people who actually bought the houses while at the peak of those prices, not there are not as many of those people as back in the 2004 hmm. to 2006 housing market bubble. And a lot of the people, house owners now have much more equities in their houses than back in the 2004 to 2006 cycle. So, so, 
Yeah, so that, that aspect alone could limit the downside risk and spill over the housing market price correction to the broader economy. All right, Anna, we got to get you in the office. Wait, she's yeah. in London right now? You're in London right know. now? When you come to New York, yeah. please stop by and, and come on the show with, with me and Paul. We'd love to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us. Anna Wong, I'm going to say chief economist for Bloomberg. And yeah. Chief, Chief U.S. US economist, economist. Yeah. Um, for Bloomberg. Yeah, but she's done a ton. In addition to all the crazy education, former chief international economist on the White House Council of Economic yeah, Advisors. No, yeah. That sounds big. Former deputy director in the Office of International Economic Analysis at the U.S. Treasury. I don't know. That sounds kind of important. Massive. Massive. And here we are talking to her about inflation, and, and she's given us some of her best work. And her model says 100% chance of a recession next year. We're going to go with that. I want to talk activist investing. Uh, that is a very interesting part of the market, and there are some people that are pretty good at it. And you have to have patience, and you have to really do your bottoms of homework. Uh, one of those folks that does that is James Rasta, founding partner and CIO of Coast Capital LLC. He's been doing this for a long time. One of the things that popped up at me, former managing director, head of international investing at Jana Partners, um, that popped out to me. James, thanks so much for joining us here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. You re, you're one of the you're one of the many that relocated from New York to Miami. <laughs> Give us thirty seconds on that. I'm not sure I should be telling that story to anyone. <laughs> certainly not on live air. But we have an office at Rock Center. Um, and I have to tell you, uh, trying to get around Rock Center at Christmas. Yes. <laughs> with that demonic. 15 second Christmas song played by by sax right with thousands of people squished next to each other uh, at some point to see a tree being lit up like right. they've never witnessed the miracle of electricity <laughs> uh, the last year that I was here I started telling people go to a Starbucks lock yourself in the bathroom turn off the light turn it back on yep. it's a much more dramatic way to experience electricity people thought I was crazy so I bought a blind person's cane to make my way around without being, you know, accosted. <laughs> oh, no. and, and people that I know saw me do this, and I thought it's time to take a bit of a break from you. Take a bit so of a break. I, All have right. to, I have to expect there are tax implications as well. But talk to us about, you know, your, um, your flavor of activist investing. Tell us a story about what, what drives you when you get up in the morning, a, a deal that you've done that you really are proud of. You know, uh, I get to work every day with people who are inspired and inspiring and who are the best operators in the industries that we invest in. And the um, <clears throat> the things that I learned from them and the engagement and the intellectually stimulating dialogue is, is what really gets me out of bed. The other thing is, you know, I have... Uh, I think as a bona fide New Yorker, you need to have several neurological conditions <laughs> you know, to last in the city as long as, as one does. One of them is I seem to really want to address problems that I see in the world, and I seem to be really convinced that I can do something about these things. And, and it doesn't just extend to my investing, it extends to, to, to a whole lot of different arenas of life. I wanna be helpful, I wanna fix things. Um, and, and You're a board member of Human Rights Watch, for example. I am, and that's some of the most important work that I think I get to do. I uh, just got involved with an organization called Young Audiences, which exposes kids to the arts, which you know, arts funding is dying in this yep. country. It's down 70% since the beginning of this century. We're behind uh, that too, but we wanna hear about making money. Making money is, is what makes all of these other uh, endeavors possible, but it's fun. Um, look, there's a lot that we've done that were really um, uh, 
grateful to have gone to do. I think that it all, I'll tell you where it all kind of started. A number of years ago, we bought into a company or I bought into a company called Compass Group, which at the time was the biggest contract catering company in the world, right? And <clears throat> Compass Group is a company that I had grown up with and I had always wanted to buy, but it was always too expensive. I am, I think, first and foremost, a deep value investor and my partners share that sensitivity as well. Uh, but it was always at like 35 times earnings. And I generated 10% margins and it grew double digits because of consolidation because everybody was going from having their in-house canteens to outsourcing. So this company, fast forward five to six years, is valued at 10 times earnings and the margins have gone from 10 to 3%. But meanwhile, as the biggest operator in the sector, it should have had the highest margins. Thicker is CPG Space LN. This is many years ago. Twice as big as Sodexo. I mean, yes. this is, you know who used to love this company? John Marie Eviard. You know, famous uh, investment. Yes, I know him very yeah. well, and and I, you know, he's he's. I would consider him a friend. He's, you know, so he had a colleague named uh, Richard Devaux and Charles Delardemel, who you know we met with and presented our work to. Uh, this ended up being a very very good investment. Went up tenfold in a period in which the market went down twenty percent. This story is a pretty lengthy one, but it's an interesting one. So I'll go into some detail without taking too much of your time. Um, it, nobody knew what the problem was. Everybody knew this is cheap, this is a world-class company, should be doing a lot better than it's doing, it's cheap on depressed earnings. But nobody knew what the problem was and certainly management didn't either. So we looked high and low for someone who could help us turn the company around, figure out how to, what the problems were, how to solve them, found a guy called Jerry Robinson, who God rest his soul just passed away last year, um, almost exactly a year ago, Jerry, Sir Jerry, was the founder of the company, bought it out of Grand Met in the 80s, brought it public in what was the biggest IPO at the time, and basically took this from a $200 million company to a multi-billion dollar entity, cashed out. When we reached out to him, he had gone on to turn around five different multi-billion dollar companies in the UK with dramatic right. success. He said, look, James, I happen to still be an investor in the company. I am heartbroken at how poorly managed it is. I have a plan for you. I will come and meet you. He flew to New York on his own dime, met with me, presented me with the most compelling operational turnaround plan I think I've ever seen and will probably ever see in my life. Right. Here's what was happening at Compass. We've got Com about 20 seconds left. In the uh, uh, we'll have to have you back to talk yes. about it. Because, yeah. and now, I mean, it's a $33 billion company, yeah. right? And yeah. um, huge success story. James, so grateful that you came into the office. I hope we Thank get you. to talk to you again. I think there's a hurricane in Miami right now. Yeah, that's so you're going to stick around, I'm assuming, in New York for a little while. <laughs> I'm actually headed to, to, to California to visit some invested uh, companies. All right, good stuff. James Rasta, thank you very much for joining us. Founding partner and CIO at Coast Capital. Joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.